What can be learned from a story woven out of fragmented moments of joy, pain, and blissful awareness? I wrote my first book, Flesh Mapping, in 2013. It was an invitation into co-creating a pedagogy, a way of learning through our shared narratives of plays and politics, a way of mapping the injuries of the material, emotional, spiritual impact of all our many journeys of growth. Some may call it struggle, forced poverty, displacement, hunger, and war. As a child raised in war, I've learned many lessons. And in the art of living, I'm inviting some of my heroes some of the people who walk with me, who have taught me to walk in beautiful ways, to see co-creation, to see community as our immunity to pain, to suffering, to wanting. Welcome. I'm your host, Sylvia Richardson, and this is The Art of Living. I am delighted to be joined by one of my heroes, Dr. Robin Hanel. He is the author of many, many, many books that I've enjoyed and that have informed my ideas about economics. His latest is Democratic Economic Planning. We're delighted to have you on our program, Robin. Thank you for joining us. It's great to be with you, Sylvia. Now, we workers, we have experienced, you know, a constant series of defeats, you know, beginning in the 1970s, it seems like the labor movement has been losing, uh, not just momentum, but we've been losing a lot of the battles that had been hard won. And so in this COVID uh, moment, you know, it's in, perhaps inspiring to think that we could have the knowledge of what the system has done to us so far to perhaps create a new way forward, you know, a, a new path for uh, for workers and all people to have an economy that is democratic and that meets the needs of all people. Uh, in the States right now, we're seeing massive ev evictions of people. And of course, the government response is to blame the previous government and without acknowledging that they're the ones in power, that they have a majority and that they could do something about it. So. How did you, you know, a Harvard-educated professor, someone who, you know, in many ways perhaps enjoys some privilege, became um, not just curious but committed to the plight of workers? That's a good question, and, and, and there's a really specific answer. I had come, you know, by the time I went to college, I had become very, very sympathetic to sort of liberal causes including, you know, the causes of unions and fair wages and safe working conditions, et cetera, et cetera. But in order for me to sort of become personally committed for the next 50 years of my life um, to fighting for social justice, social change, and a new and better kind of economy, what it took was it took my government telling me that they were either going to send me to fight in Vietnam um, against the national liberation movement that I had a tremendous amount of respect and admiration for, or they were going to send me to jail. And that experience way back in 1969, I realized has had an incredible effect on my entire life ever since. And I think that that is the kind of thing that most people have to go through in one way or another. 
um, you can be a victim of racial discrimination. You can be a victim of, of gender discrimination. Or you can be put in a situation like the one I was put in where, no, I don't trust my government. My government's not telling me to do the right thing. And I'm going to be stubborn and I'm going to sort of fight for what's right. And so that's, that, was, that was what happened to me. And I think for most people who become lifelong committed activists, some may be able to arrive at that point personally through a purely intellectual process. And I had gone through sort of an intellectual process, but I don't think that I would ever have been as stubborn and committed, um, you know, to the various causes that I have sort of helped try to advance and, and fought for over the past 50 years if I hadn't had that personal experience in my own personal case, which is you're either going to go to jail or you're going to have to flee to Canada and become an exile, or you're going to have to go and fight and try to kill somebody who's trying to kill you when you actually think they're right. Mm. In so many ways, you know, the the history of Latin America has been imprinted by blood. You know, there's so many invasions, U.S. invasions, and they all have one root, and that is power, right? Economic power in many ways, but it's power, really. At the end of the day, it's not really the resources, because the resource could be water, it could be oil, it could be anything. It really is about having power. I think in education, we can go through a whole education process and never learn about power dynamics, you know, how race, uh, gender, political uh, injustice, you know, kind of tips the scales in one way. And we are blind in many ways to our privilege, right? We all have some kind of privilege. You know, I, as a settler in Turtle Island, have privileges that have made possible for indigenous people to be invisibilized and to have their needs ignored, you know, and likewise, perhaps people who are born by virtue of being born by a particular race have more privilege than others. And we don't always want to own that because we think if we own that, there's shame with it, right? And we just get stuck and there's, we just get frozen by it and don't know what to do. And I think shame and guilt are useless emotions, you know? The key is to realize that, yeah, we have a flooded house, you know, it's got racism, it's got homophobia, it's got xenophobia, it's got all of these horrible things floating and it's our responsibility to clean it up. You know, you don't just move in on a defective house and say, well, it was like that when I got here, so I'm not going to do anything. So I love that you have been very busy about, you know, not only fixing our house, but building it from the foundation up. So let's talk a little bit about the kinds of economics that have got us here and how we get out of it. The relationship between the United States and all of Latin America for the past 200 years has been one where the United States has exerted a kind of imperial dominance over the political and the economic processes, you know, in, in the rest of the new world. And it's part of why the resistance to imperialism and domestic capitalism as sort of aided by U.S. outside forces on average, in Latin America, we have seen sort of larger struggles, more significant struggles than have occurred inside the United States itself. And we're going through another wave of that. I mean, this is our second pink wave. So we had a pink wave back in the late 90s. We now are having a second pink wave in Latin America. And 
even preceding that, the, the socialist political parties, you know, fighting for independence from the United States and trying to transform their own societies to serve their own people, were generally stronger, you know, in Latin America. What nobody has managed to figure out yet is, well, what is the alternative economic system that we want to put in place of sort of imperialized capitalism? And, and I think, once again, the second pink wave in Latin America is sort of coming to the point where you're going to have to come up with better answers to those things than people have managed to come up with in the past. So thinking about what is the alternative, um, I think, once again, is probably on the agenda in Latin America more than it is here in the United States, where we're simply sort of putting a sigh of relief that we avoided full fascism under Trump first administration and avoided a fascist coup d'etat attempt on the part of you know his forces in the republican party and we'll see if we can continue manage to sort of ward that off in the middle of a you know of a terrible health pandemic well, one of the things that you point out is the empire, right? We don't think about empire. We don't talk about empire in school. We talk about the Ottoman Empire. We're taught about the Roman Empire. Something that happened hundreds of years ago, but we don't think about the U.S. being an empire, you know, enforcing its will through military force, through economic force, shutting down economies as they did in Argentina, you know, everybody now knows the story of the Argentinian economy being, you know, flipped overnight. And we don't talk about the neoliberal program that has been imposed on us by the point of a gun. And so we live in this world and it's almost like the fish, right? They're swimming in the water and they don't know what water is. And so in many ways, I think it's demystifying what economics really are. Because most people say, well, you know, what can you do? The economy will collapse. You just have to go along with it. And so here's where you come in. And you, as an economist, someone who breathes and lives in this world of you know, and can talk in the water, um, you understand the system. You know what an economic system is, you know, is and, and it basically has taught us to see it as a form of relations. So what can a democratic economic planning do for us that the current economic system does not? I mean, you said earlier, that we've basically suffered 40 years or more of defeat. And that's certainly the case, that neoliberalism in the United States and globally um, has essentially taken us back toward a much more primitive, a much more vicious, a much more environmentally destructive, a much more inegalitarian form of capitalism than the kind of capitalism that had sort of slowly been transformed through reforms in the middle of the 20th century. So that is part of the experience, you know, that we are still trying to recover from. We're trying to see whether the progressive wing of the Democratic Party can, you know, can manage to recreate some of the kinds of reforms that are similar to the kinds of things that we had back during the New Deal under the Roosevelt administration. I can be pessimistic and say no, the Biden administration is going to bring no real change whatsoever. Um, I can also be optimistic and say, no, I'm not sure that's the case. 
if we can pass the second bill along with the first bill, um, it will be probably the greatest sort of economic reform we've had in the United States since the Great since the New Deal. I'm not going to simply go out there and be a pessimist on the basis of past experience of failure for the past 40 years. That that's different from have socialists managed to learn the lesson that we need to learn, you know, over our own failures over the past hundred and so years. You know, that's where I've tried to make my contribution, at least intellectually. What, what I've discovered is that the original socialist vision of workers in their own workplaces and their own councils and consumers in neighborhoods can participate in planning through neighborhood consumption um, councils. But that vision, which was really the early socialist vision of what they wanted to replace capitalism with, that vision was essentially correct. But what was not apparent to socialists at that time was that they assumed it was going to be easier to do. Just the procedures you have to go through, they thought it was going to be easier. They thought it was going to be sort of obvious how it would, how it would work. And instead, what happened was we discovered with the Soviet Union and we discovered with communism and we discovered with a lot of things, you know, that were not what the early socialists ever envisioned, that it's not as easy as people once assumed. Um, you actually have to have answers to questions about how all sorts of different economic decisions are going to be made. And you can't assume that people are going to agree about everything. It's not just going to be a, a happy, harmonious situation where, oh, all of a sudden, with, you know, with no capitalist class of overlords, we're all going to miraculously agree about exactly what it is we want to do. And it's not going to be that we can just sit down and talk it out. You actually have to think through some procedures that are going to make all this work. And I've been working on that project for over 50 years now, and this last book, it tackles questions and issues that I had always left as I can sort of make suggestions about how certain things can be done. And I'm pretty sure that this would work. I can sort of present evidence that it would work. But then there were other things that I wasn't sure about. And in particular, reproductive labor um, was not something that I had ever addressed or my co-authors and I had ever addressed before. And it's addressed in this new book, um, Investment Planning long-term development planning of different kinds. How do you do in long-term environmental planning? How do you do long-term education planning? How do you do long-term strategic international economic planning? And how would a desirable economy actually interact with other economies in the world? Some of which are gonna be less developed, some of which are gonna be more developed, some of which are gonna have a system that's a sort of a decent kind of economic system, and some of which are going to still be very capitalist. And so what the new book does is basically provide a lot more concrete suggestions about how it is we could tackle those problems. And hopefully it takes us beyond simply continuing to say, we believe there's a better way. And we know that it's a way in which workers and consumers plan together. We have to be able to go beyond that now. Um, in light of historical experience, in light of historical failures, and in particular in Latin America. The Cuban economy is not the answer. 
And Chavez in Venezuela came along and said, no, we need a 21st century socialism. And it's got to be a lot more democratic and a lot more participatory than the 20th century version that we sort of took over from the Soviet Union through Cuba and assumed that was the answer. But they didn't manage to implement that. In Peru and Bolivia, there's a sort of another chance. And these chances only come along every so often there. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of bloodshed to get these chances. We, we need to put a lot of time and energy into when these chances come along. What have we learned from the past? What are the things we have to do, you know, in order to uh, avoid the outcome, which is the second pink, the first pink wave fizzled out? We don't want the second pink wave to fizzle out in Latin America. And that means we have to do some things differently than people did during the first during the first pink wave. As human beings, we have been under constant, constant threat, you know, and like our brains are not creative when you're constantly running. And so we need to collaborate with others. And I think the reason why Venezuela has managed to survive multitude of coup attempts by the United States in the last you know, eight years, right? There's been over 20 so far, and they just keep constantly aggressing them. Even during the COVID pandemic, you know, sanctions were increased, and they stole over $190 billion. One of the people I interviewed said, you know, that was an equivalent of 25 years of social services for our people. And, you know, so, so it's very clear that most of the time we're doing this work with one hand tied, right? Most of us are also answering to the politics of the stomach. I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, though, because the commodification of life and health, you know, is really what has led to this pandemic being such a growth source for some industries, right? Pharmaceuticals, um, you know, health industries will thrive out of death, but not everybody else does well. So we have to start questioning, you know, is our economy really in our service? Is it in the service of people? Or is it something that we've created? Because we all have to take a little responsibility when we allow governments to simply shirk responsibility and invade other nations in our name or blockade other nations in our names. You know, we, we have to, as a populace, have to take responsibility. Who are we electing? How are we participating? It's not just about voting once every four years and then you forget. But at the same time, we also need to be willing to share that responsibility and realize it's not just you alone that will fix it. You know, we all need to collaborate together. And so to me, one of the works that you have shared most uh, impactfully is uh, the idea of a participatory economy by the people and for the people. And I think that plays a big role in a democratic economic planning. You know, you, in your book, you talk about income based on effort and need. Can you talk a little bit about what you need by what you mean by that? One one of the fundamental differences between a a desirable economy, a fair economy, and an economy that's just blatantly unfair to most people is on what basis are people rewarded for the work they do, for the sacrifices they make, for the efforts they put in when they show up to work. And my argument is that what socialism should have always been and should have always stood for is that if 
you put in more effort than somebody else in your workplace, then that does that does warrant some commensurate reward of of an of a of a somewhat higher wage that you deserve a greater reward if you in some way sacrifice more if you work longer hours if you put in effort when other people were very lackadaisical about it now i think that's fair and i think that's a fundamental sort of precept of fairness that socialists have always understood then the question is well but how do you implement that and what I've argued all along is there is no other way to implement that but to leave it up to workers amongst themselves in their own workplaces. That workers in their own workplaces are going to have to figure out how to basically reward one another amongst them. They're going to have to come up with a system that they feel comfortable with whereby they will make judgments about are there any differences amongst us in terms of how hard we worked or how much we sacrificed over the previous month or the previous year. And if so, how great are those? They're going to have to do that. And that's been one of the fundamental parts of uh, the proposal of a participatory economy. We want to design an economy that allows workers to, in their own workplace, make their own judgments about when they want to reward some amongst them to a greater extent than others amongst them. And it should be on that sort of basis. Now, that leaves aside differences in need. Independent of how hard somebody worked or whether it's some, or what sacrifices somebody made in work, um, sometimes people just, some people have greater needs than others, medical needs. So there also has to be a system of saying, look, part of consumption is based on needs and we need a system whereby we can essentially establish fair rules for when it is that somebody has greater needs and therefore we are going to grant them greater consumption rights, independent of whatever it is that they earned, you know, as a worker in the economy. If you look at the history of socialism, we've wavered on this. Socialists have had a difficult time. Sometimes we understand this very clearly and we stand for that and we say that's what we want and we want a system that delivers that. And sometimes we've shied away from that and said, well, maybe not. Um, I mean, if somebody's work is more productive than somebody else's work, even if they didn't work any harder, well, then don't they deserve more? I mean, we've had a huge number of debates among socialists on this subject. That's one I think that we continue to need to get clearer and clearer about. And one of the things that I'm very proud of is I think that I've done a lot in previous publications, not just this, one, this last one in explaining how you can reward people fairly and it doesn't lead it does not need to lead to inefficiency it does not need to lead to the inefficient assignment of labor to different places where it's most productive so reconciling efficiency with a fair system of reward i think is something that that i take a great deal of pride in having made a contribution in demonstrating to my fellow socialists you know we can do the fair thing we do not sacrifice efficiency when we do that. One of the things that I really care about is the social determinants of health. You know, we've been talking about pandemic. We've been talking about the imminent, you know, uh, ubiquitous nature of the 
future waves of pandemics they're coming we're told it's gonna be never ending you're gonna have to get a shot every year whatever um i was talking to an epidemiologist and he said you know the one thing we need to do is end poverty now you know that would be a really good start to arrest the pandemic you know we know that poverty makes people farther vulnerable to all kinds of illnesses you know precarious homelessness all of that so I, I wonder if you could uh, maybe talk a little bit about how an economy that perhaps included something like a UBI or a way to arrest that abject poverty, that level of you know displacement that our economic system and the neoliberalism and the constant pillage model has created. One very short answer is this, that we recommend a UBI in a desirable economy. We basically say, look, when you're trying to design a desirable economy, and we call it a participatory economy, what, what are the essential features it has to have? So the question becomes, what if there's somebody who society thinks should work, they're not you know, young and still in school, they're not of retirement age, but they simply decide, uh, I don't want to. And our answer is, we think there should be a UBI. Um, we think that there should be a universal basic income. We also say clearly that should depend on the economic level of development of the country. That if you have a highly developed country, well, then it can afford a higher UBI, even for people who say, though, I, there's no reason I'm not working, but I just choose not to. If you are still a very underdeveloped economy, if your standard of living for everybody is still very low, then it's a lot harder to afford a universal basic income. It won't be as generous. But on that issue, we think that that's, that's the answer to that question. I don't pretend to any great expertise in the health area. I mean, I've been reading the literature and listening to the debates about how, how we're handling pandemics or we're not handling it. One thing I feel very sure of is our healthcare system in the United States is about the worst in the world in terms of how it's organized compared to Canada, compared to every European country. You know, we have done it wrong. We've done it wrong since 1948. And a lot of other developed countries have done it a lot better, not even comparing ourselves to the Cuban system, which is phenomenally wonderful. So and in the United States, on the other hand, we had the good fortune that we ended up with tremendous supplies of the vaccine. And our problem is we have a segment of the population that doesn't want to take them. And we have a healthcare system that is about as discombobulated and inefficient about getting the vaccines into people's arms as you could possibly imagine. Whereas you, I understand from my sister who lives in Canada, have had the opposite problem. You have a decent healthcare system, and through bad luck, you ended up with very short supply of the vaccines. So it's kind of this crazy situation. But I pretend to know expertise in this area. In the environmental area, I do pretend to some expertise. And one of the things that I find very distressing is when I look at um, how much time to, to do we, the human species, how much time do we have to figure out how to treat one another fairly? How much time do we have to figure out how can we make our decision-making processes, not just political decision-making, but economic decision-making processes democratic? How much time do we have to figure out how to do things more efficiently? Well, in some sense, we give ourselves the time in the form of prolonged misery. If we take more time, we just have more miserable people for more time. 
The environment's not doing that. We literally only have 10 to 20 years left to make huge major changes in how the global economies are operating vis-a-vis carbon emissions. And there's no guarantee we're going to make it. And there the clock is ticking. We don't get to give ourselves incompletes in economic justice and economic democracy and just come back the next year and try again. Not on this subject, not on the subject of climate change. And that's one thing that I also, you know, spent a lot of time telling my fellow leftists, look, do not tell people that we can't solve climate change until we have socialism, because frankly, we're not going to have socialism in time. Mm. So we better figure out a way, even with the burden of capitalism, even with the burden of administrations as, you know, politically backward as the Biden administration, we better figure out a way to do something very, very dramatic on this front, both international negotiations and national and state policies. And I still believe it's possible. Um, And that's one area in which I am crossing my fingers that the Biden administration is actually going to put us on the right path on that. And we're going to manage to launch some form of very imperfect, but at least a large something that that, that deserves the name of a Green New Deal. I mean, certainly in the case of where the United States will go and how the world will go, I think that how that turns out over the next two years of the Biden administration is going to say a lot about just how difficult circumstances are going to be for humanity going forward. Thank you again for being with us. Great being with you, Sylvia. Stay safe. Take care. Thank you for listening to The Art of Living. I'm an educational consultant and artist authored for more information about upcoming events workshops retreats please reach out to sylvierichardson.com until next time remember to be playful to celebrate joy and to allow love in all your co-creations you'll never have to wonder where the groove went the groove is you (laughs) 